friends, welcome to the program. This is Dr. Jack, and this is the place where we seek insight and understanding into the field of psychology through lectures in my early episodes and through conversations like this one today with diverse professionals and students in the field of psychology, where I provide them a space for them to tell their stories. Now, I know there are a gazillion podcasts out there, so I'm really humbled that you decided to stay and visit. So grab your favorite beverage and find a comfortable spot. And actually, I really should change my podcast title to Dr. Jack Needs a Friend. I know I'm copying that from Conan O'Brien, but just recently through my professional organizations, I've been able to bring on guests to the program and really have a lot of great conversations. And today's guest is no exception. Today I have with me E. Lee, and she's a second-year doctoral student in counseling psychology at the University of Buffalo SUNY, which is the State University of New York. And she is an international student from China and came over during her high school years to the States. She has a BA in psychology, minored in counseling, and East Asian culture in Asian American studies, which is pretty impressive. And her master of science in edu- is in education and mental health counseling from Indiana University at Bloomington. She also enjoys research, and her research interests include, and you'll hear a lot of this in the conversation ahead, include minorities, people of color, Asian international students, acculturation, bilingualism and counseling, and positive psychology. And I have to tell you, this conversation, I was really very impressed. I'm impressed with all my guests, and especially the students that I've been having on lately, And as a doctoral student, and especially as an international student, I was particularly impressed by how she came over to the U.S. and really succeeded through the educational system, uh, despite a lot of challenges. Um, I really like the fact that she's so passionate with so many different research topics. I'm not going to get into them now. You'll hear them later on, that uh, I feel like really she has a bright future ahead of her in terms of what she wants to do. We really explored a lot about providing therapy in a second language. So even though we may be native speakers of that second language up to a certain level, it is very different when we're using that language in a professional context like counseling, right? The context really matters a lot. I thought that part of our conversation was just very, very fascinating to me because I could relate to some of that. And you're going to (laughs) hear near the end me giving her or uh, E some advice, right, Uh, coming from a person who's been through the process. So I felt like the old man on the mountain. In any case, uh, I don't want to belabor the point. I think you'll really enjoy this conversation. I hope you're enjoying all of my guests lately that I've been having on, and I have many more to come. So uh, my podcast has gone from me doing a lot of monologuing to me doing a lot of monologuing while speaking to another person. Before we get started, another reminder, if you find that you get some benefit from this podcast and you want this podcast to get even better, the best way is to support my efforts. This is how you do it. You can subscribe, follow, share it on your social media, rate, review the podcast, in the podcast platform app that you happen to be using, especially things like uh, Apple Podcasts or Spotify, right? So take a moment to do that. That really helps. If you're too lazy to do that, then uh, look in the description and just click on the link to buy me a coffee. 
Okay, let's get on with today's uh, conversation. I'm so happy to have this week E. Lee uh, on the program. Tell me a little bit about uh, your origin story as a psychology student. You're a doctoral student now. So trace back as far as you want in your lifetime in terms of like, when did that sort of idea come about that you wanted to study psychology? Um, I think um, probably um, in high school uh, when I first got to the um, United States. So I started off 10th grade um, in a um, Christian high school in Illinois. Mm-hmm. Um, so back then I I was totally in this cultural shock um, that you can call it um, for yeah. the first um, year maybe also. Um, I tried my best to fit in with the students. Um, nobody was mean to me. I, I was perfectly fine. Nobody bullied me, but it was like, uh, I, I always feel like there, there has been a wall between me and the rest of the world. Um, I only made friends with other um, international students um, in my high school, particularly people um, from China. Um, mm-hmm. then, then, so it just got me thinking because I'm, I overthink a lot. I still overthink. Um, so it got me thinking about like why this is happening to me. Why would I get those feelings? Why would I be confused about um, the environment um, and all that? And I started noticing that my personality changed a little bit too. Wow. Um, I was um, a little bit more like an extrovert when I left China. But then after I got to the U.S., I feel like I was more introverted. Mm. Um not really by choice, but because yeah. of the language barriers, because of the cultural barriers, I just tend to um, keep a lot of things to myself. Um, so I feel like that was um, this personality shifting was a little bit uncomfortable for me. Uh, but then um, I guess that back then I didn't really have a choice because um, my English sucked at that time. And um, I didn't really know what to talk um, to other people about. People were nice to me, but I didn't really feel like I fit um, with the group. Um, so that's how I um, so that's how I feel about myself um, for the first mm-hmm. three years in high school. Uh, then when I got to college, naturally, um, my dad wanted me to pursue a degree in business. Um, so I got accepted to business school. I was like, my my dad was pretty happy about it, but the, like the first couple classes, I was like, nope, I'm not. I don't want to do that. So, um, so I was, uh, I was, I took an intro to psychology, which sounds, sounded really fancy, but it was like the hardest mm-hmm. class I ever took in college wow. because it was a lot of things that you need to remember, um, yeah. details like histories. Uh, but then I got really interested in, in the field, um, in general. Uh, then I remember in my sophomore year, I started to taking um, counseling classes, which mm-hmm. was a little bit more um, focused um, in the aspects of counseling psychology rather than the general psychology because I, I didn't really have a passion for science stuff. So I was like, I'll just work with people's mind. I'll be fine. So um, in my counseling classes, I feel like that was, you know, the very formal um, introductory for me to this field. Um, and I really enjoyed it. Um, I think I took, um, I took like positive psych and career counseling mm-hmm. and intro to counseling. There was like other like Asian American, um, uh, Asian, like counsel- intro to Asian American mental health. Um, those were all like undergraduate level courses, but then, um, it covered a lot of, um, different topics. 
Um, let me let me yeah. interrupt you real yes. quick. I, I think it's fascinating that you have those classes available about the Asian American mental health because when I was in school, undergrad and grad school, I mean, we were nowhere near having courses that specific. You know what I mean to cover a particular segment of our of our population, right? They were just right. very general kind of theoretical courses, and then the counseling courses. My doctor's in counseling psych, also, so it's you know. We had a multicultural counseling class. That yes. was to the extent of it. So for you to have that opportunity as an undergrad, right? Those are undergrad classes you're talking about. Yes. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, I'm gonna, you know, do like a special shootout for my uh, grad, uh, for my undergrad and my master's um, school, Indiana University Bloomington. So that that's mm. where I completed my degrees. Um, they actually have a minor um, study program in Asian American um, studies. Yeah. I believe it probably is one of the few co- universities in the college where um, they do that kind of stuff for um, Asian Americans um, specifically. Yeah. Um, and um, I, I'm going to take a wild guess that because um, we had a lot of faculty, Asian faculties um, on staff for um, the counseling program. So that's why they um, they kind of promote or offer um, this at courses for people, uh, for students who are interested in it. Yeah, that's why representation is so important, right? Yes. So if it were not for that faculty representation, chances are 99% that, that specialty wouldn't have existed. <laughs> of course. And um, yeah, yeah, then, you know, um, tracing back to my journey um, in my um, junior year of college, uh, I met this great mentor of mine, Dr. Joel Wong. Um, he is the best um, in the field. Um, and um, he has done a lot of amazing research and he's like a great mentor um, in general for many, many of her, um, many, many um his students. Mm-hmm. Um, so I joined his lab and then I started working on some behind the scenes stuff. So I didn't really get to know the field of psychology from, the general knowledge um, aspect of things, but rather than from like the research side of things. Was this still as an undergrad? Or are you talking about grad yes. school now? Okay, no, really? That's wow. undergrad. That yeah, is undergrad. Yeah. So, so, this, so a quick message to the yes. listeners, right? As an undergrad psych major, look for these research opportunities, right? Yes. Um, there, there were tons of, you know, um, research um, those like RA positions available yeah. those most majority of them are like volunteer based uh, money uh, money is like important but um, during like early years um, you might also be looking for a lot of research stuff like research experience like I did a ton of transcribing things which you know you just like sit there and listen to like those yeah. hour-long recordings then you trans- transcribe things, but those will help you build up like a lot of foundational skills. It's not glamorous at all. <laughs> oh, no. A lot of times it's, it's going to the library. Uh, back in the day, it was actually walking to the library to find articles and making photocopies. You know, for now, of course, you do online research. And yes. uh, that's showing my age already. And But but just in terms of just uh, like running studies, helping to run the studies. I was in mm-hmm. social psych. Uh, not Well, as an undergrad, I, I like the social psych professors and we did a lot of these sort of you know in-person subject type mm-hmm. studies and as well as in grad school but yeah that's great that you did this research and it doesn't and for the students listening out there it doesn't matter what 
you're doing, right? It may seem like, oh, I can't believe I'm just making copies or, <laughs> or something like that. It's that you're understanding the process of research. And also you're making mm-hmm. valuable connections with these mentors mm-hmm. who do research. And then you have a chance of maybe being a co-author on a study eventually. Possibly they'll write good recommendations letters for you as yep. you apply to graduate school. Correct? Okay, talk more about that and how that whole process uh about uh which no one no just to, no just continue talking where you were i interrupted you so you know your undergrad research experience and oh and yeah your, me- um, your mentor yeah right um so i really wanted to work with my mentor um mm-hmm. but unfortunately um he stopped accepting um grad students um as he took up on some administrative role which is you know the necessary evil in the academia um, so instead of just doing uh, a PhD directly, I did my uh, master's in mental health counseling, where I absolutely loved my experience there. Mm. Um, I did my clinical training in the department training clinic, where I was able to see people from, you know, college age to all the way until like 50, 50, 60s, because it was open to the community and got like a sliding skill fee. So like everybody was, you know, took on that opportunity and reached out. That's fantastic. Because yeah. our, at University of Houston, when University of Houston, when I was there, our, in my first year of training was also at a university counseling center on campus, but it was limited to students. So the right. fact that you're able to see in that early training stage, people from the community, that's an, that's an awesome experience that you had yeah i mean i am um i am doing uh my clinical um training um in university counseling center and that's where i um ended up want to be anyway um, for my internship and for future jobs but mm-hmm. it was amazing to see how a department training clinic can um, just be there and um, have this provide this super valuable resource to the community because we, um, when I was there, I mean, I really took up on the chains of being this bilingual person and I really, really wanted to do Mandarin speaking sessions yeah. for clients too. Um, so because it was a training opportunity, I know I was supervised and I know I could do things in like a you know, a safe way to help mm-hmm. clients. So I reached out to the director and I got the green light. So I actually was able to do Mandarin counseling sessions with students um, who are in need as well. And um, yeah. yeah, and the clinic always, always provide uh, Spanish counseling um, services to people who are in need um, in the community because um, there's a shortage in um, Spanish speaking um, counselors um, in Bloomington, Indiana specifically. Um, I think that speaks to the whole nation as well. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, it was just like a great, great um, place. Um, then, um, then after you know two years of my master's, and then I ended up in Buffalo, New York. Uh, where I'm completing my doctorate in counseling psychology. Yeah. So here, here's the big question that yeah. uh, I pose to anyone who has finished a master's, which I always recommend if there's a choice, right? Unless someone really knows after they get their bachelor's degree that they really want mm-hmm. that PhD. That, you know how it's a combined program? You get it along the way, the master's. Yes. So you did a terminal master's program. You mm-hmm. got your degree, which means you can go out there and work and do whatever you want. And then you pursue a doctorate if you need to. So the question yes. is, why did you pursue a doctorate d- 
degree? Is it a PsyD or PhD? PhD, right? It's PhD. Program? Yeah. And, and what do you think it will give you beyond your master's degree training? And I'm putting you on the spot, but <laughs> that's the question for you. <laughs> yeah, I think it um, gives me a little bit more freedom um, in terms of what I can do. Um, for example, um, I, as a doctoral level um, provider, um, I will be able to have access to a lot of assessments and I will be mm. able to do a lot of um, psychiatric evaluations if I want to. Um, so those are the perks that I see um, from getting a PhD and also because I have some passion um, in research as well. And I feel like there is um, a lack of um, research, especially with Asian American mental health, um, as well as a bilingual um, counseling services and see how um, that's being effective for people whose native language are not mm -hmm. English. Um, so I really, really want to get further um, into those two aspects of things. Yeah, and th those are the best reasons because in my experience, um, when I was in the doctoral program, I worked with the faculty to be on the selection committee to interview mm -hmm. and go through the applications for incoming yeah. doctoral students, right? And inevitably, we'll ask that question because we'll have our counseling program, you needed a master's before you enter, okay? Oh. And so these are master's degree people who are mm -hmm. applying for the doctoral program. And of course, we'll always come up with that question. So why, why are you pursuing a PhD? And believe it or not, some people really could not verbalize mm. the reason. Of course, it's just sort of the next step. Uh, I want the PhD behind my name or whatever. But a person really needs to know exactly why, because it's such a commitment, you know, four years doing a, doing a dissertation and, and being poor, you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> you know, it's a big sacrifice, right? So... To know exactly what that doctoral degree provides, like what you described, is really, for everyone listening out there, you really need to think about that. If you have a master's degree and you're doing therapy, and, you're, and that's really what you want to do, is to be a therapist, yeah. right? Just mm -hmm. do clinical work, focus on your clients or patients in your setting, then really that's sufficient, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, but if you want, like you said, to open doors, to, to be a researcher, to become a university professor, that kind of thing then yes. And I think another benefit also is, and this is my personal experience, was that when you're working with the Asian American community, having mm -hmm. that doctor in front of your name, it's a readily recognizable sort of status, not, not sort of an artificial thing, but just your expertise, right? So, oh, you're a doctor so-and-so. And, and it gives that automatic level of respect. You don't have to really explain too much about it than someone with a master's degree. They may not quite a lay person in the community may not quite understand well, what does that mean you have a master's in counseling, right? Yeah, and especially with um, this community, I feel, well, it can be, speak about other communities as well, but um, with, you know, Asian um, communities, I feel like often um, this mental health stigma um, is something that we still need to work on um, fairly oh, yeah. hard. Because um, my parents, until this day, I don't think they quite understand what I do, uh, especially with this cultural difference between U.S. Um, and China. Um, so mm -hmm. they don't know much about psychology. They don't know much about counseling psychology. And they didn't understand why people would go to therapy for things because um, in their mind, like nothing is um, not workable unless you like unless you are like weak or um, weak minded yeah. um, people. Do you, do you think they have a better 
or more awareness now because of the pandemic and, and the issues of mental health are discussed more in the news. You know what I mean? Do, do you think, or maybe they're isolated and they don't hear about these things. <laughs> but, I, mean, but... I, I mean, because of pandemic, I feel like China is in a very sensitive position where, because yes. um, it's different because like in yeah. the U S we talk about this, we added mental health into our, you know, insurance plan and we promote mental health. We talk yeah. about mental health awareness, but in China, it's like a different environment. So, um, so that and that is more on the political side of things. But I feel yeah. like my parents are, you know, doing their best to take care of themselves. But definitely, um, yeah. limited social interactions is something that I feel yeah. like people are still struggling with right now. Oh, are they currently living there now or are they here in the oh, States? Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, they, they, they're they in China. Like, I'm the only one in the entire oh, family. Okay. Um, okay. The- oh, even when you came to, for high school? Yes. Um. So I lived with host families when I oh, first came. Okay. To okay. I meant to ask you that. Like, what was the reason? Was it if like one of the parent, where your parents had a business or something? But it was really just for you to study yeah, overseas. I, wow. Yeah. They asked. Well, they asked me if I want to study abroad. I was like, yes. Mm-hmm. And I was yeah. just ended up here. And at first, I didn't really think that I would go this far because my dad had the business. And so mm-hmm. my thought process was like, I would just get a bachelor's and then I would just go back and help my dad. Um, unfortunately, my dad's business didn't work out. So I was like, okay, maybe I this is the time that I need to start a little bit harder and work something out for myself. So that's why I ended up here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, recently, I had a conversation with another PhD student from China, and she mentioned that she got interested while in China as a high school student and did research about which high schools to choose in America, which is sort of a foreign idea to me, like just in terms of, wow, you actually researched high school rankings? I didn't even know that was a thing. So before you came over, did you or your parents also do the similar process of researching high schools to go to? No, because... I mean, we we had money, but we didn't have like a lot of money. Mm-hmm. High schools who ranked pretty high probably Pri- cost a private. lot more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a lot more um, compared to other um, schools. Um, so my so this is a little bit complicated. A family friend um, who is currently in the U.S. would like reach out to my parents and ask my parents if they wanted to send me to. A diff- like American school then they asked me so I said yes so I, I just ended up in like a random um, Christian high school um, oh. it was not like ranked super high I like my school I love my school I think all the people were great and I still yeah. keep in contact with teachers um, but it was not like one of the best schools in the country not, not yeah. that type well, the fact that you mentioned that you weren't bullied or, or mistreated that way, I think that's <laughs> a good thing <laughs> because I mean, it's yeah. so common for us Asians, even those born here, just no matter. And for me, growing up in Texas, so few Asian students, mm-hmm. any of the Asian students, most of them were mostly from the Vietnamese uh, refugee era. Mm-hmm. So these are the young kids who were from those families, right? So their, yeah. their English skills were not quite as good. They were in ESL mm-hmm. class. And I remember being lumped in with them in ESL, even though I spoke good English, but I was too shy to speak. So the counselor, mm-hmm. when I showed up, assumed that um, I couldn't speak English. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. you know, in you go with the others. And I remember uh, Mr. Belitzo, I don't know why I remember his name, but he was the homeroom teacher. 
And he said, Jack, you speak perfectly fine. Why are you in here? I said, I don't know. <laughs> and he put me in regular English. And then I ended up making an A minus and the teacher freaked out and used me as an example for the other students. Like, why are you doing so bad? Jack just came from Taiwan. He made an A minus, which was not completely true. You know, I already knew English before I went to Taiwan. And then we came to Texas. But anyway, I'm glad you had that really good high school experience um, that launched you. Um, so do you see yourself... And I don't know if that's something you want to talk about now, but uh, career-wise, do you think you, you're going to settle in the U.S. or do you think you'll go back home to China to work there? Um, by the time that, so I thought about this uh, like over and yeah. over, um, like um, I am the only child to my family so that, you know, my parents, they will naturally grow old and um I have like with this Asian culture, like you're supposed to take care of your elderly. So I have thought about that um, for many, many years now. Um, I think I tend to leaning more towards like staying in the U.S. Um, just for work reasons, um, just because that by the time that I will finish my Ph.D., I will be spending half of my life in the United States already. And those are the half, half of my life where I do a lot of thinking and I do a lot of worldview form formatting. Mm. Um, and I don't, I don't really want to uproot my life and do that cultural shock process again, because yeah. when you go back to China, it is the reverse cultural shock. And yes. that is very real. Um, China being a very rapidly developing country, um, everything that I knew when I was a kid, I was gone. Like, I came from like a very small town where I didn't think development developing was like kind of like a thing for this um, place. But then every time I went back, it was like the thing that I loved to eat as a kid for breakfast. It was gone. Like I asked my mom, and my mom was really? like, "There was, there was like nowhere to be found." Um, or you know something like that. So you mean um, like these mom and pop traditional. Chinese breakfast places, that kind of thing, those small restaurants. Yeah, so now it's like, yeah. you know, those um, those things were, those fruit carts were gone, mm -hmm. like oh, right. everything yeah. that was familiar to me was gone, and I didn't even recognize the roads around because wow. being like a small town, I think it needed a lot of um, road constructing because they are expanding um, the city so like every time I go back it was like okay it was it was not it was not the small city that I remembered when I um, first left when I was 15 um, so every time I went back I feel like a total stranger like I didn't I don't have any friends left in China now like I don't wow. keep in contact with them so <laughs> the only thing that's holding back you know the only thing that connects me and China now is just my parents and my and family and that was that yeah 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 i think that's very difficult that's the same situation my father was in actually he was the mm -hmm. only one in his family who studied overseas that was sort of like oh. you know only the cream of the crop and very handful of people would leave you know to study overseas that that's the situation he was in you know um the pressure to come home and people not understanding mm -hmm. what he's doing overseas. What is he studying? Mm -hmm. You know, and he was dirt poor. I think he literally only had like $30 in his pocket or something when my parents moved to Canada for him to study school. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So let's uh, transition a little bit to talk about what you're doing now in mm -hmm. school. All right. And so you're in your second year of the PhD program. So mm -hmm. 
So what kind of coursework you're taking? Are you, and you say you're doing clinical work as well, clinical training work. So you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, okay. I just finished my semester. I'm going to try my best to think about what courses I took. Um, I think, well, every year we got to take a um, practicum class where we talk mm-hmm. about our clinical experience and we do oh. this group supervision type of deal. Um, so that was, you know, that's on every semester's um, schedule. Um, so this year was our um, practicum course. We also um, did um, a overview about um, DBT, which dial uh, DBT. Uh, what stands for DBT again? Dial dialectical behavior mm-hmm. um, training. Oh, you know better than me. I'm I'm way out of the clinical world now. It's been 20 years or more. Yeah, so um, I think this is part of the things that people are using mm-hmm. in a lot of group counseling settings oh, nowadays okay. where they treat um, some like emotional stability and depression. So learning a lot about like skills, um, skills that can, you know, really help with their mental health. Um, so that's, um, so, so that's that course and then i had a course specifically dedicated to yoga um yoga teaching um i am starting to become a fan of mindfulness intervention where Mm. i utilize a lot of um not really like yoga in my actual individual sessions but a lot of like mindfulness meditation that type of Mm. thing for um for an individual client so i got interested so that is actually one part of the mindfulness certificate plan program that my my program offers um so this is just like in addition to the main doctoral degree that i'm pursuing i'm also pursuing this mindfulness certificate um degree um so um yoga class yoga teaching class was one of the things too and then i'm taking like a social psych class um for a graduate level um just Mm -hmm. to expand our knowledge um social psychology concepts. I think social psych is great because uh, I started as a doctoral student in social psych Mm -hmm. before I changed to counseling. And I felt like at the time, oh, did I waste all those years and credits of studying something that I'm not doing anymore, right? I'm not being a social psych. But I found, as as you can probably attest to, that the social psych principles and concepts Mm -hmm. and theories really integrate well in the therapy world, in the counseling world, don't you think? Yeah, of course. Um, a lot of our um, not really my study, but a lot of yeah. um, studies that people um in my cohorts or in my program they do um they really ground ground themselves um in the social psychology concept, um like the classic um the classic um the actual self versus ideal self. That's um that's something that people might think it's a counseling term, but it's actually like a social psychology concept. Um, for people. So, so yeah. it is really a useful class um, for us. Yeah, and, and I recommend everyone out there, no matter what their psych major is, to take at least one social psychology class mm-hmm. um, because it has such everyday applicability, you know, just mm-hmm. talking about the person, the situation, how we tend to overlook situations and people's mm-hmm. behavior, right? We focus on the person, the fundamental attribution error, stereotyping, oh, yeah. prejudice, Mm -hmm. All of these concepts that take a deep dive, even in an undergrad social psych class. Um, Oh, I wanted to ask you, you mentioned that you also do, you know, the bilingual counseling, right? Mm -hmm. How difficult is that? Because I know you're, you're fluent natively because of the age you left China, 
but to to use the language in a counseling context, how challenging is that for you? Or did it feel just completely natural? It was very challenging at the beginning because, mm. um, like, when when people do, like, informed consent, I'm sure, like, all the therapists can do, like, amazing work just doing their, their informed consent because it sounds natural to them and it just flows. But when you do it in Chinese, it's, like, a different language because you got to translate it to Chinese. Then you got to, like, express yourself, like, in the best way because when you translate something, it, it doesn't sound natural because <laughs> yeah. it was written in English. And now you have to like speak, talk about it in a you know, different language. So oftentimes I will pause and try to explain to the clients um, in a little bit more detail. With forms, did you have to actually do the translating into a written form that someone had to sign? Or was it mostly just the language, spoken language part of it that you had to do? Yeah, so they have the um, the um, the option of choosing to do the paperwork in Chinese. Um, as oh. well so we we had that ready for them oh okay you already had that okay yeah so i didn't know if they I, put that on you to do the translation part of it like they didn't I, have one already i did i did some translation but because the um there were previous um chinese um students um who did um some sort of a managing counseling um before so i adapted those forms and then i got a tweak a little bit add like some things um to it but then most the majority of the content was usable um to that um so it wasn't so paperwork and informed consent was the easy was the easy part to be honest because the hard part was like to have the conversation because i'm fine with like having like a normal conversation in mandarin yeah Yeah. but like when you do that in like a professional setting you'll be like thinking because i i am trained in english like all my knowledge about counseling is english like when i do like a when i talk about like a microaggression or when i talk about specific concepts it's all in english the my definition my definitions was like in english so like when i do that with um with mandarin chinese clients then i'll have to think about like how do i make this less casual because like all the conversation i have in mandarin chinese were casual conversations so that was um you know the hardest part of doing counseling is that i'm i'm just trying my best to not make this like a friend's talk rather than right Right. Yeah. And also, so you have the language layer of it. Now, do yeah. you know does a does a certification type thing exist for someone doing therapy in the U.S. in another language, non English language? You know what I mean? To check the competency yeah. level of that person doing therapy in that language, because you know someone can just say, "Oh, I'm fluent," mm-hmm. right? But then mm-hmm. work with someone who speaks Spanish or Mandarin, and then just not quite be able to you know say what they need to say what's your experience so far does that exist with when you're asked when you asked to do therapy in in mandarin nope <laughs> i just ask and they trust me i guess okay. and they just like like okay, do okay. what you gotta do um yeah. so i think um honestly like in clinical level like a national certified thing there was like none that's for like certified um yeah. Um, in language competency, but um, but I know Columbia University they offer a 
counseling program specifically dedicated to his um, Spanish speaking counselors. So it's yeah. So so they it's yeah. So I I think I briefly looked at it because I was applying to that college too. Um, but it's actually sort. I I can't remember if it's a master program or a certificate program, but it's hmm. specific dedicated to working with bilingual clients. Oh, so so some some places some structure exists for that. Yeah, I think that's the only like. structure oh, wow. in the U.S. So so it's, so it's still very rare because my it's... wife is from Myanmar, Burma, okay. right? And she, I don't know how, but she left us as, as at twelve. But she's still very fluent, right? Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of Burmese refugees in Houston, where we are, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so she got certified, uh, tested to be an interpreter. Right. Mm. So for those who don't know out there, interpretation is the spoken language part of it. Right. Translation is putting into writing. Right. Like translating a document, translating a book. Right. Okay. So so she she got certified as an interpreter. And uh, so she would go to clinics and whatnot. And and then, you know, refugees come and they have to speak with the doctors and the medical staff. And that's what they do. And and my wife's parents also got certified as interpreters. So as retirees, they would go, you know, and meet meet the incoming refugees and speak to them and and there's a skill to it right Mm -hmm. because in interpreting you really have to do it verbatim you can't just insert your own opinions and judgments Mm -hmm. and make shortcuts you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) and not say everything the doctor is saying right so yeah i can only imagine how challenging that is because uh let me spend just a minute i know this is for you but i want to spend a minute talking about my experience at the university counseling center where they knew I was the only Asian person and, and also only Mandarin speaking person there, but my proficiency is not quite as good as yours. I'm basically a primary school level Mandarin speaking child in a 55 year old adult's body. Okay. So that's, that's kind of, but back in grad school, there was a crisis case where a graduate student from China who really had a much more difficult time in English and wanted to speak to someone you know, in Mandarin. And they said, Jack, go, go talk with her. I'm like, I don't think I can. I was really hesitant because I was like, my Mandarin's not that good. And this is before recently when we moved to Taiwan and my, my language skills become a lot better. This is a long time ago. So mm-hmm. I was really nervous. But then I realized that what that person really needed was just someone to be in the room, mm-hmm. someone in a safe environment, someone to talk to, just lay it out, just full of tears and and I had this out-of-body experience, like I was watching a Chinese movie, you know, like this person was just saying things. I'm not used to, you know, having this kind of conversation every day. And then I, I really don't have the vocabulary to really help her, but it was just a one-session thing. And then she, she talked herself into deciding what she needed to do, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. It had to do mm-hmm. with her her marriage. And so and then I never saw her again, right? And she thanked me a lot after, and I barely spoke a few words. <laughs> you know, so I was just super scared, right? So I'm so amazed that you you can actually do that and and do it effectively. So how how many counseling sessions have you had or clients in, that that you did this in Mandarin language? Um, I would say like a good um a semester um, wow. semester type of thing because I really stuck to it and my clients thankfully they were very consistent they always show up for they always showed up for their session and just because I am in counseling too um, and my yeah. counselor um, speaks English um, so I, like what I just like noticed from like being a 
someone like who attends therapy and also someone who provides therapy I feel like native language is super important in the counseling session room just because of the emotional connection um, that we are able to formulate Um, like for me I struggle very much with my emotional connection because I can't put my I can't put my emotion into words like I will have like this feeling in my heart but I can't articulate it in English and when you translate mm. English um uh, emotion words in English um to Chinese like a lot of them will be missing like for example yeah. anger so- frustration annoyed those can all be like translate into the same Chinese word so so it's just like a lot of things were missing and I I didn't really like that for me personally like when I had my sessions with my therapist like there was like one time I remember like I just couldn't process it because this mm. thing happened in a Mandarin Chinese context so when I retell retold the story to my therapist it feels like I was telling somebody else's story and myself was like, I, I was like able to pull myself out from the story. But what I really needed was like, I needed to process that emotion with my yeah. therapist, but because the language difference, I couldn't. And mm-hmm. it took me like a good couple of days after the session to really talk to, through um, about this thing with my friends who also speak Mandarin and also right. my family um, so that I, I will I would be able to process. And I talked to my therapist about it. I mean, she, they did their best, absolutely best. It's not sure, their sure. fault that they didn't speak Mandarin, but it just like speaks to the level of um, the need of having native language in the session room um, if if possible, I feel like all the training yeah. site yeah. should provide this opportunity, not only for the students who are able to speak um, in different languages to practice their professional skills, but also for the people who are seeking native language services, because I did my research. And before I got my therapist, I was like, I did my research. I specifically want someone who speaks Mandarin in my area, but there was none. Like there was like... Mm. Wow. There was like zero people in Buffalo area um, who can do that. I think for this is a good lesson for anyone who's becoming a therapist or a counselor mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. if you work with someone whose native language is in English, that is something they have to remember, right? Is that there are some things that they may not be able to verbalize, mm-hmm. right? And it's not because the client is unwilling or unable. It's just that those words literally like you said, don't exist in mm-hmm. terms of how they're feeling, right? So yeah, and, and in the Houston area, a long time ago, uh, you know, with a few clinicians and faculty members, we, and then when I was a grad student, we started a coalition to start the first Asian American Counseling Center in the Houston area. Oh, wow. And then eventually when it was created, that that's who they hire were master's level therapists, whether it's social work or counseling, who were of bilingual ability, mm-hmm. specifically Chinese and Vietnamese, you know, mm-hmm. predominant populations in Houston, and they had no access whatsoever anywhere, right? And my wife, being a social worker, she was the only Burmese-speaking social worker anywhere around here in the 100-mile radius kind of thing, you know? Wow. So yeah, so like you're saying, it's it's a common experience, right? Someone mm-hmm. whose native language is in English and they're trying to look for mental health services. So anyone out there who's bilingual and they love psychology, this, this is a great opportunity. 
And just like remember that don't get frustrated when you don't get the opportunity to do bilingual services. Um, I feel like that people might have this expectation expectation that during their training services that they will be able to, but unfortunately it's not because as a trainee, um, we basically just pra- practice therapy um, under somebody else's license and the training site ultimately have the responsibilities um, to cover our asses to be honest so um, there's a lot of um administrative things to go through um in terms of providing bilingual services Um, but just don't give up you might get lucky that some of the training side they're willing to put up the risk and help train you in this way but if not just keep looking for opportunities out there for example like i um i didn't i unfortunately did not get to do bilingual counseling after my doctorate program due to um different reasons um Mm -hmm. supervision reasons because like they just want to make sure like i'm not screwing up the clients because i am speaking a language ultimately there are very few people would be able to understand um but i'm not giving up hope um i am yeah. doing my clinical work in university of rochester next year so mm-hmm. hopefully that was a mandarin speaking staff um staff psychologist that i will be able to work with um with them um, in terms of providing bilingual services yeah yeah i think as a grad student you have to be very proactive and looking up those resources on your own right oh when, yeah when when you're mm-hmm faculty or mentor is limited in that way so yeah yeah mm-hmm. yeah that's good I, I see that um when you wrote your uh bio for me that you're interested in uh in terms of research right international mm-hmm. students acculturation bilingualism are there a couple things there uh, this is the portion where i ask about my guest passion projects so so talk a little bit about one or two things that you're passionate about when it comes to either research or your clinical work? Of course. Um, so currently I'm working on a project mainly focusing on how um, how college um, college students deal with um, the um, the basically the comeback of um, the COVID um, thing mm-hmm. because right now like um, I know a lot of them went through this um, um, online learning for a good a year and a half or almost two years and now a lot of majority of the universities are requiring all the students to return back to campus for in-person activities and in-person learning so um i was um, curious about how people are adapting to this um this change and how the university counseling centers per se, um, in terms of um, providing um, the necessary support um, for those students, because um, honestly, with limited social interactions for two years, after two years, you might get rusty about how to get connect Mm. with people, and even how to like make friends and stuff like that. So, um, so I was just, um, I want to know like how much stress that they are um, experiencing during this transition and how the university counseling centers are doing their best um, to try to help and how can um, they help further? Because I imagine with the fall um, semester, everybody will be required to return back to campus as well. But sometimes there will be like the COVID outburst 
or things might change um, depending on the COVID situation. So just, um, so everything depends now. So I just kind of want to know how people are dealing with this and how people are coping with the situation. So that is, you know, one of the projects that I want to work, I am working on and I want to start another um, projects mainly um, with um, the bilingual um, counseling um, or just people's experience with their bilingual counseling. So, for example, for native speakers who are receiving counseling services in their native language yeah. about their satisfaction about their oh. services versus p- native speakers who are receiving counseling services um, in non native language i hope i'm making sense now because like i'm yeah so i think tired. you you want to compare like say if it's a chinese client yes. chinese clients in general whether mm-hmm. they see receive counseling from a chinese speaking same same language mm-hmm. counselor versus someone who's speaking english right right yeah yeah, yeah. to see and to see yeah uh, yeah to see the connection of connectedness um within the sessions mm-hmm. and the therapeutic alliance that they are able to form or yeah. not able yeah. to form with their therapist so that is a project that i want to ultimately doing um for later um too and I, there's just like so many passionate things that i want to do like for example that i'm super passionate about one of the projects that i did before was called a like gratitude group so this is designed mm-hmm. by dr joel Wan my amazing mentor. Um, so this is like a structured um, six-week um, group counseling where the theme is focused on gratitude and how to express gratitude. Um, the group was offered in English and there's also a Chinese version about it too. So I was like, this is just like totally my jam, positive psych and Chinese. Um, so <laughs> I really want to... Cool. Yeah, I really wanted to see how I'm able to um, do um, run a gratitude group in this um, sort of like during COVID and see mm-hmm. and maybe compare some data because there was like previous research done in this um, group before, but that was pre-COVID. That was like right. everybody face was to face. Kind of, yeah, right. Everybody uh, was face yeah. to face. There was like nothing um, too too concerning regarding like human interaction. Everybody was able to be in the same room. However, like right now, if I see like a, if I run a group, I'm most likely that I will be done online and it will be like lots of other, um, you know, barriers um, that I may face. And also it might be hard for people to be grat- to be grateful at this time because mm-hmm. it might sound difficult because nothing, nothing seems to be um, worth to be grateful for. Um, well, we we'll see think, a lot of bad news every week yes, in the news. Um, yeah. So then there's a lot of hopelessness um, that mm-hmm. people are experiencing. Um, so, so yeah, if that happens, because I, I do need like a place, um, sort of like I need a supervisor who can supervise this group thing. Mm-hmm. And also I need like a place to run this. So if it happens, it happens. But um, I'll keep pushing it. I'll talk to my advisor about it. It just depends on how um, people see about this. Yeah, those are all great research questions. So if I were a faculty member somewhere and and uh, you know a doctoral student came with me, say I have these potential research ideas. I think all of those are so timely, right, and mm-hmm. so important. Um, so here's a question for you: Do you find yourself 
maybe a little bit overwhelmed because you have so many ideas and and which ones to pick and choose to do. And then you have to take your courses, <laughs> finish your courses. And you're in your second year, finishing your second year, right? So mm-hmm. in your program, when do they start the process of grad students? I guess you have to take a qualifying exam, right? Is that, That's still a part of it, right? Yes. And then, then you can start your dissertation. Is that yes. the order? Okay, so it's similar to my experience way back when. Yes. And so... So when are those things going to happen for you in your timeline? Well, my um, um, regarding the overwhelming piece of things, I think the most <laughs> yeah. frustrating. I think the most frustrating part is that my advisor um, always tells me to do less. Ah, um, right. Because hey, they're uh, smart. <laughs> yeah, he's. Um, I love my advisor. He um, he's very caring. I mean, he constantly mm-hmm. he um, take care takes care of me, and he wants to make sure that I am at my best. Um, I had some of my personal um, difficulties last year, so he just like he was like, "You just make sure yeah. you are okay. Everything else yeah. can wait. You like you need to put yourself first. So that's what I've been doing by taking care of myself for the past year. But I just during this time, even though when I was a you know when I was instructed to do less that i'm still taking volunteers at crisis text line because i thought you know it was you know great opportunity i (laughs) didn't have much crisis experience i'm like i'm just gonna do this and i really enjoy that like yeah i saw that on your cv yeah i said how how, how do you fit that in you're doing too much I know. Uh, yeah, you and my advisor could be best friend in regarding <laughs> to that. So, um, so as in terms for me, because I am doing qualifying paper mm-hmm. prior to my comps, uh, the the qualifying exam. So, yeah. um, I am in the process of collecting data for my qualifying paper. I was hoping that I could get this done by end of the summer. However. Things just didn't work out, and I'm okay mm-hmm. with that. So um, I hope that I can take my um, comprehensive exam by end of this year, early next year, so that I can um, start working on my dissertation ideas or dissertation proposal by yeah um, next year, early next year too. Yeah. So if there's any um, wise man from the mountain kind of advice I could give you about grad school and. and because I went through the exact same steps that you're going through now, and it's probably something you've already heard from your wonderful advisor, is that your ultimate goal is to finish, mm-hmm. right? to get your degree. So while you're a grad student, while you have all these wonderful ideas and working with the community and all these kinds of things, is that the, the main goal for you is to get your degree, then do all those wonderful save the world kinds of things because what happens is is that students end up trying too hard doing too much or tackling a dissertation project that might be too big you know Mm -hmm. what i mean that's too cumbersome Mm -hmm. so while you can still do something in that area my best advice from personal experience is to do something that is good but doable Mm -hmm. right that's feasible that's right. practical, that that you don't have to jump through 10,000 hoops just to get your participants or that kind of thing, you know, to do surveys or, or data, data collection. So I'm sure if you relay this back to your advisor and say, hey, this podcast guy told me about this, he'd probably say, yeah, that's exactly what I, what you need to do is just to focus on finishing, mm-hmm. right? And, and uh, that's the big thing. Because I wish someone, uh, when I was in grad school, 
gave me a little bit more. My committee was great. Okay, they're 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 fine, but I think they were a little bit too passive for me. I think I really needed someone to just hammer over the head with me and say, Jack, okay, I know you want to do this really big thing out there or whatever, but get it done. Let's mm-hmm. get it done. You know, and and it, I and if you look through my podcast episode history, there's one called All But Dissertation. Okay. ABD. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of people who are in ABD status, right? Meaning they've completed everything, their clinical work, internship, coursework. They may be having a full-time job already in a family and a dog, you know, that kind of thing, but their dissertation is not done, mm-hmm. right? So they, they officially can't have their degree mm-hmm. and that's what's holding them back. So I mm-hmm. think it's really important to just have finishing as the main goal. Will this help me finish on time or or within a reasonable amount of time? That's all I have to say about that. Well, thank you so much for sharing that with me. I think I have um, heard a lot of people who um, have already completed our doctorate acquiring in you know different um, different areas. Um, they they just keep telling me um, the same thing that because um, I am ultimately I'm also facing all the thing, all the great things leading up to um, applying for internship. And one of the advice that I think was most valuable and stuck with me was that um, try to think that you want to finish your dissertation before your internship, because that will make you stand out um, from yeah. all the applicants. Um, yeah. And also you can be emotionally, mentally free to enjoy oh, your yeah. internship, right? right. Because right. that's a full-time, that's basically, for those who don't know, it's a full-time job. Yes in a clinical training site and you get a paid a stipend. You can't even call it a salary, but back then in my day, it was called a stipend. It was really horrible. It's like 18,000 a year. It's <laughs> even back livable. Then, it was, yeah, it was livable because I, I lived in my aunt's house, so I didn't have to pay rent, but it was in California. So that's the only way I survived without mm-hmm. having to borrow money during that year. And, but for me, see, the dissertation was hanging over my head the whole time. Mm-hmm. So ideally, if you get it done before you go, then you can just sort of like go enjoy wherever you are, totally get involved in clinical work and training. And then when you're done with that internship, it's possible that that internship site will offer you a job or you'll get a lot of job. Your degree is done, right? Mm-hmm. Your coursework is done. Then you can just sort of say, yay, I'm, I'm finally done. I can uh, accommodate all these different offers. Mm-hmm. When I was ABD, I had to reject a lot of those offers. Because it's like, oh, I can't really do that because I'm not done yet. No, I can't really do that because I'm ABD. And my wife will still kick me today. They're like, oh, we could have been there. We could have been doing that. You know, <laughs> if you didn't finish so late, I eventually got it done. And that was such a relief. But but it wasn't even something I could celebrate. It was more like, oh, finally, I'm done. It's not even something like I'm going to cheer, you know, because it right. took so long. Right. But anyway, I don't want to belabor that point. But that that's my biggest lesson from grad school. It held me back for sure. And and there, there was a borderline time where I wanted to quit. It's like, oh, it's not worth it. And let me just drop out of the program, you know, whatever. But it's like I invested way too much time and money to not walk away with that degree. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. In terms of one's capabilities, there's no different, right? You're a completely good professional. You're a complete person. Whether you're completely competent, you just don't have that piece of paper. Oh, yeah. Those things that you mentioned that you love to do with research, you know, those could be dissertation topics, right? Yeah. Um, ultimately, I just have to make a decision about which one that I want to do and which one are possible to finish yes. before before the time I want to graduate. So Yeah, yeah, exactly. Before internship, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Any other things you want to share before uh, I think our, we've spent a lot of time here, we've spent the hour here chatting. So, um, no, not not really. Do do you have any other questions that you want to ask? Um, let me think about that. That's good. No one's ever asked me that before near the end of a podcast. Like, do you have any questions for me? Um, I'm just very impressed with um, the fact that you came over by yourself at a young age, you know, and I'm sure it wasn't easy, right? I mean, you know, there are ups and downs emotionally and all that, but you, you managed to not only survive, but to excel in your academics to the point you're in a PhD program. That's amazing. So that that's, uh, I think if, if no one's ever told you that, you know, you need people to tell you that, that that's really amazing that what you've accomplished so far. And, uh, and I, it would be great to follow up with you at some point, whether it's a year, two years down the line, see how you're doing. And don't think of me as nagging you on your, on your dissertation. Okay. <laughs> I'll just, wherever you're doing, even if you completely change careers, that's okay. You know, I'm not one to judge. Right. But it would be fun for me to follow up on every student that happens. I happen to have a chance to talk to, to see how they're doing later on. Well, thank you so much for um, saying that. I think me um, struggling, I mean, because that I came um, here alone at such a young age, I feel like I struggle with validation a lot. Like I don't give myself enough credit. So thank you so much for validating what I have uh, accomplished. Um, why this is just very much yeah. things that I need to hear every single day. Um, and also I love, I would love to follow up with you, whether you want me to do like a specific episode specifically for international students out there, that would be great. Cause I'm, I, I honestly, I, like I have been yeah. there, I struggled and I yeah. got through, but I do not want to. Yes. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. You asked me if I had a question. Okay. Th yes. This is one I asked another grad student was if you could talk to yourself, your 15 year old self, oh. right? What would you tell her to, if there was anything now that you have a little bit more life experience and wisdom and experience all that, mm -hmm. anything that you could have done a little bit differently or focused on certain things and not other things? Um, I know we, we don't want to live life with regrets. That's not my point. But if there's any guidance you can give that 15-year-old E <laughs> who's about to depart and go to the U.S., what would you tell her? It's funny. Like a lot of people ask me the question before. Really? Um, <laughs> and I think... Um, I think by the time, like, I, I, I change my ideas, like, from time to time. Um, but I think I finally land on one idea is that it's okay to be different. I think um, I struggled. Um, I struggled with being different before I left China because um, I was bullied in China because mm. I was different. I probably had a different personality or something. Um, that made me stood out or didn't fit with the group. So I, I just want to tell her that it's okay to be different. It's okay mm -hmm. that if you don't want to follow anybody's step or it's okay that your dad's is in business and you want to do something in psychology, it's totally okay. Well, that's great advice. I'll pass that on to my 19-year-old. Yeah, <laughs> I'll play, just, this, I'll play yeah. this clip for her. I was like, it's okay to be different. Yeah, it's okay to be different, right? It's just about being comfortable in your own skin, right? That's yes, it's the bottom line. It's just ac acceptance mm -hmm. of who you are right. and not feel this pressure to be like somebody else or fit into mm -hmm. a certain group. And that's so hard as a young person to go through yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, it is really hard. Yeah, mm -hmm. you know, 
you can't be 15 with a 30 year old maturity level. You know, it's just, you just have to live through it and make those kinds of bumbling mistakes along the way, I guess. Oh, of course. Okay. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you making the time. I know everybody that comes on my podcast is very, very busy. And I just really enjoy these conversations. Um, when I started podcasting, it was just me talking to myself all the time, you know. So it's great to have conversations and meet new people. So thanks again. Well, thank you for having me.